0: Welcome to the Slalom Daily Dose, our healthcare and life sciences industry podcast. I'm your host, Perti Kanodia, and today we're speaking with Paul Upham, Senior Principal, Smart Device Technology Center at Roche Genentech. We're going to hear his perspective on serving patients via the new digital world of pharma, smart devices, digital therapeutics, and more. Paul, thank you so much for joining us today. We're really excited and looking forward to hearing your story.
1: Thanks, Purdy. I'm really excited to be here. Looking forward to it.
0: Could you share with us a little bit more about your role and how you fit in the broader Genentech Roche organization?
1: Sure. The Smart Device Technology Center that I'm leading is a group within our technical development organization. And we're really focused on two technology areas, uh, hardware in terms of connected drug delivery devices, whether that's pill bottles or syringes or auto injectors, And then the other part of the team is focused on software, and more specifically, software that's regulated as a medical device. So in the technical development organization, our primary role is to work with the brand and molecule teams to realize the products and solutions. We're very often developing technologies for chronic disease that are frequently self-managed. Uh, We have have some products that are healthcare professional-delivered injectables, but we also have a portfolio of products where the expectation is that the patient will take the drugs on their own at home, whether oral or injectable. So we have a particular interest in usability and human factors and really paying attention to the patient's needs. And within the larger Roche and Genentech digital health ecosystem, We're really laser focused on connected drug delivery devices and regulated software. And so there are plenty other parts of Roche and Genentech that are uh, developing really interesting digital tools. And they come to us when those digital tools require some sort of certification or compliance in uh, whatever markets they're interested in.
0: Wow. That's a complex world that you live in. (laughs) It is. Wondering, what's your path to getting here did you already know that you wanted to do this from an early age? Or how did you stumble into what you're doing today?
1: Yeah, stumble's a good word. A windy, twist-and-turny path is <laughs> another way, perhaps, of describing it. I think for me, what happened—I grew up in Minneapolis, in Minnesota— and I worked my way through college uh, by working at the International Diabetes Center, uh, which was a part of a large multi-specialty group practice serving research and education for patients and healthcare professionals working in diabetes, both type 1 and type 2. I was going to school uh, for a cognitive science degree. I had also learned programming and uh, had a love for software since actually junior high school. And I was able to marry those two in my uh, cognitive science program at the University of Minnesota. And it became quite obvious as I was working at the Diabetes Center that there was a huge unmet need uh, that could potentially be filled by using software tools to help patients directly better self-manage their diabetes, and even software tools that could be given to healthcare professionals who work with those patients to help them better manage individuals as well as their populations of patients. And it was really because of the Diabetes Center that uh, the spark was lit for me in the power of digital tools to affect large populations of patients. And, and I eventually moved from Minneapolis to New York uh, to go work for Becton Dickinson, which is a gigantic medical technology company. I had been doing some consulting for them when I was at the Diabetes Center on software. And in the early 2000s, they were looking to get into the blood glucose monitoring business. Very competitive lots of large, entrenched players, and they knew that software could be a source of competitive advantage, potentially. And so they hired me and basically gave me a blank page and said, we have spent decades making sharp, pointy things, needles and syringes, and now we need to make software. So please build a software development department within our R&D organization and make a product that works with our blood glucose monitoring solutions. And, oh, by the way, it's going to be considered a class 2 medical device, so please get it cleared with the FDA and get it CE marked in Europe and tell us when you're done. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a super interesting challenge. I was terrified because I had come from this nonprofit clinical world, and so I was having all, the, all this change. I had changed geographies. I had changed from a nonprofit world to a large for profit corporation, and now I was responsible for building a team that would make regulated products. And we did, and we were quite successful um, in doing that. And in part of that journey, I discovered a small Baltimore based startup called WellDoc, and they were doing some really interesting work in using mobile applications to help patients with diabetes better manage their conditions. And I'd run across them because we were looking at ways to get competitive advantage in the diabetes market. Ran across WellDoc, got to know the uh, founder, Suzanne Cisco, now Suzanne Clough, who's an endocrinologist. She ultimately, in 2010, convinced me that I should leave this giant med tech company and go for a ride with her and the team at WellDoc and experience startup life, experience building new technologies that had never been built for, before. And so I did that for about uh, three and a half years and led their product group. And we built the world's first mobile prescription therapy for type 2 diabetes. The product that's on the market today, it's called Blue Star. WellDoc continues to be in business. It's a product that's reimbursed. It's a product that had two randomized controlled trials where we showed that we could be as effective or more effective than many pharmaceuticals. It was at WellDoc at that moment that I realized, wow, software that is focused on behavior change can be more powerful and more effective than pharmaceuticals. And that was quite transformative. And eventually found my way back to Becton Dickinson, but in their pharmaceutical systems business where they were looking to develop smart devices, which got me to Roche and Genentech. And it's almost like the time is finally right for all my skills and interests to come together. So I'm uh, I'm 51 years old, uh, and it's, so it's taken a while. <laughs> but it's super exciting right now because all of it's coming together, both the the need, the technologies, and and super interesting solutions.
0: Well, I have one word to describe that, and that's, wow. <laughs> Thank you for sharing your journey and this very rich path that you've had. And what I can gather from what you just said, I heard the word blank page, and then I heard lots of build.
1: Mm-hmm. What
0: this tells me is that you're kind of an entrepreneurial spirit who takes a blank page and then basically draws out the canvas and create something and build something amazing for patients. So thank you for doing what you're doing. would love to know, in the past year, what would you consider as your biggest accomplishment that you're most proud of?
1: There's been so many super interesting things that we've done in the last year, but I, th- I think the thing I'm most proud of is... It's really been in the last year at Roche and Genentech and even in um, some of the industry talks that I've given that I'm seeing receptiveness on the part of our teams, uh, on the part of management and others for applying behavioral sciences to how we think about ways to get our patients To have better outcomes and ways to get healthcare professionals to make better choices about what's going to work for their patients. And uh, more specifically, we're doing work with a behavior neuroscience team to think about how should we design the right user experiences, whether for a patient who's doing self-management or for a healthcare professional who's trying to make the right choices to personalize care for their patients, how can we use what we understand about how the brain works to make better choices about those the design and development of those solutions? And it's been in the last year that that's gained traction at Roche and Genentech, and we're starting to see it in industry. I was at an industry event in London, England, uh, in the end of the winter this year, and there were at least three speakers from pharma talking about how we ought to have chief behavioral scientists in our companies. And it's something that our that the consumer technology world adopted a few years ago. But there's been this explosion in understanding of how the brain works and what behavioral determinants are. And I think the time is ripe. Um, and we've had some really interesting successes bringing that type of thinking to especially our software new product development efforts in the last year.
0: Thank you, that's a perfect segue into the next question. You know, you talked a lot about software and then devices, and then now we have the drug component. We'd love to understand from you how these three pieces fit together in the new world of digital pharma. It's,
1: uh, It's not simple because there's so many different tools that I think are now available to us in pharma. On the hardware side, it's the connected drug delivery devices that I talked about my team working on. And and that's there's even examples in the market today. There are connected inhalers that help people with asthma and COPD get data about their medication taking and have it integrated into software applications that help them sort of make better choices about their self-management. So there's connected drug delivery. It's not, it's not everywhere. It's not in every condition. Uh, but there is that type of hardware. And, that, and that's really about the implementation of sensors and wireless technologies into pre-existing drug delivery devices or pill bottles. And that's been made possible by the consumer technology world driving towards miniaturization, of those electronics, driving the power requirements down so they don't require big batteries, and driving the costs down so that we in pharma can adopt these technologies that have been refined and commoditized in the consumer technology world at a price point that makes them affordable. And so that's really a key part of the the hardware side of it. But what we're also finding is we can use consumer technologies like Fitbits and other wearables or, or sleep sensors or sensors that are on your, your bed or the whole sort of panoply of consumer sensor wearable technology, and we're learning new things about um, our patients, about their conditions, about how our drugs do and don't work in those patients by correlating the data coming from all of this hardware. Um, and doing really interesting advanced, in some cases artificial intelligence, but predictive analytics and other sophisticated analyses on these data to really have a much better understanding of what's happening in the patient's environment when they're away from the clinic or hospital. On the software side, it's just been a huge explosion because it's... um, it's everything from mobile apps that help encourage behavior change, like we were talking about before, even the WellDoc example with BlueStar being a, a great one. But it's also software that's deployed on a patient's smartphone that sort of passively records their movement, um, and and. generates a profile that can be analyzed by a sophisticated algorithm and help, for example, a patient with MS understand how their disease might be progressing, or understand how effective a particular therapy they've been put on is, all through just analyzing their movement data, because movement is such a critically impacted function in MS patients. One of the newest areas that is super interesting is digital therapeutics. And this is really an emerging area. It's not incredibly well defined yet, but it is about software that can achieve meaningful clinical outcomes. And there are some examples, like Blue Star, where you're able to achieve a meaningful clinical endpoint with software alone. But we're seeing programs that we're working on where perhaps the digital therapeutic or that piece of software, whether it's a mobile app or or something else, becomes label-enabling for some of our drugs. So we have drugs in development that are targeting a particular therapeutic area and have a particular benefit, and we're now seeing and starting some clinical studies where we think we will show that if you combine that drug with certain types of digital therapeutics, we actually get a you know 1 plus 1 equals 3 synergistic effect by combining those two. And, and we're going to start designing drug clinical trials that involve these digital therapeutics, and they're going to be arms or sub-studies of, of our clinical trials. And so it's really exciting from a software perspective.
0: Yeah, this is indeed very exciting for the industry as a whole as we see pharma adopting digital and what that could do for our patients and physicians. With that in mind, would love to hear from you. What do you see as the benefit that the patients would receive with these new digital therapeutics, smart devices, etc.? And what is the business value of a manufacturer to be doing smart devices or a digital therapeutic so would love to hear both aspects from the receiving side on the pay, from a patient perspective and then from a manufacturer perspective who is responsible for developing these therapeutics
1: yeah it's a it's a really important point i think I think even if we got short-term business value, the first priority has to be delivering value to patients. It's only when you're doing that that you have a chance of having a sustainable model or technology. Some of the ways that we look at patient benefit uh, with these types of tools are widely known that medication-taking behavior suffers from adherence and persistence issues. There's a there's a whole stack of reasons why people aren't able to stay on the therapies as prescribed. Either they're not able to manage the daily, weekly, monthly regimen and they have adherence issues or maybe the side effects are so bad that they end up just not persisting on the therapy for as long as it would be necessary for them to get a clinical benefit from it. And, you know, the WHO recognized this medication adherence problem in 2003 and said if we don't address it, most of the value of all the new medical technologies and biotech drugs that we're developing won't be realized because uh, there's no benefit in a drug that a patient doesn't take. And in some chronic conditions, in particular, Those adherence rates are as low as 40%. There are certainly examples where adherence rates are in the 70 to 80% range, but on average, when you look at most of the peer-reviewed literature on this subject, it's about 50% for chronic diseases, which means that patients are on average, only getting half the benefit. And that might mean that they're getting none of the benefit from the drugs if if the clinical trials have shown that you have to have certain amounts of drug in your system to receive the clinical benefit. So there's a huge opportunity just in something like addressing medication adherence for patients to have better outcomes. And, it's, and they're going to feel better, they're going to live longer, and they're going to be able to better manage their condition. So I think That's a great example of a challenge that that if we can address it, especially using some of these new digital tools, there's a significant patient benefit. On the business side with medication adherence, it is very simple arithmetic. If patients are only about 50% adherence, any small movement of that needle to improve adherence has a lot of business value. And it's, it's sort of crass, but it is... The case that if patients are more adherent, we see greater prescription refill rates, and that directly translates to top-line revenue for companies. Um, and so that that business case is actually one of the simplest to make in the sort of digital health world. The real challenge is that nobody has successfully deployed technology that has shown a sustained improvement in medication adherence across most conditions. There's a few shining examples. And then there are the benefits that patients can receive when we deploy digital tools for healthcare professionals. We're doing some really interesting work looking at predictive analytics that would help patients choose better dosing regimens that could be tailored to an individual patient's profile and would enable, for example, a conversation between a a doctor and a patient that says, well, based on your specific individual profile, you should come back for therapy every six months. But the next patient who comes in based on their profile, maybe the software can show that if they come back every eight months, they're going to achieve optimal outcomes. And that's a very different model than saying every drug has a certain regimen and fr- dosing frequency, and it should apply to everyone, because that's not how humans are built. That's not how biology works. There's a ton of variables we've perhaps never paid attention to that are influencing what's going to work for a patient. And so these software tools should allow much greater personalization and precision in the care of an individual patient by helping doctors tailor therapies for patients, which will make it more convenient and ideally also, again, lead to better outcomes.
0: Absolutely. You mentioned one of the challenges that's being faced on your end from an industry standpoint. Would you please elaborate on some of the other key challenges that you see industry facing or that the industry is trying to address as a whole when it comes to the new digital world of pharma.
1: I think one of the challenges we talk the most about almost every day in the office are some of the regulatory challenges with some of these new digital tools. The, the world of software as a medical device has been well established, especially in the United States with the FDA. There's been risk classifications and there've been 510k clearances issued for software products for years now, decades. So that's well established. What is new and interesting about pharma adopting these types of digital tools is that the drug and biopharma regulations uh, have never really gone there. They've never really addressed what does it mean To have a drug with a complementary digital tool. We're just starting to see the few examples of those hit the market with software tools that are sort of either co-branded or linked to a particular pharmaceutical therapy. But when you look at all the super interesting work that the FDA is doing in the United States with uh, digital health, whether it's the PRECERT program or whether it's all the new regulations that sort of are now law as a result of the 21st Century Cures Act being signed in December of 2016, those are very progressive, very interesting developments that in many ways make it easier to launch digital health tools that are regulated in the United States. The challenge is that Cedar, the Center for Drug Evaluation, and CBER, Biologics Evaluation uh, Divisions of the FDA, have never signed on to any of those software regulations or guidance documents. And we've been told for at least a year to expect that Cedar will be issuing a guidance document about software associated with pharmaceuticals, and it still hasn't come. Our fingers are crossed that it will show up in the next quarter, hopefully, and we're really looking forward to that to understand how can we start to marry these two worlds together, the world of pharmaceuticals with the world of software. So really interesting, my hope is that CEDAR and CBER take all the best practices that CDRH is putting into place and say, yeah, we ought to apply the bulk of those to our regulation of pharmaceuticals and software. I think that'd be fantastic outcome. I would contrast what's happening in the U.S., however, with what's happening in Europe. And with the implementation of the new MDR in Europe starting in 2020, there's almost an Automatic up classification of all software to higher risk levels, which means for everyone, whether you're a medical device company or a pharmaceutical company introducing software that's a medical device, the burden is going to be greater in Europe for getting a CE mark, and the burden is going to be greater for providing the types of documentation and testing reports associated with your software that might be relatively simple and easy, and in some cases down-regulated in the United States, but significantly up-regulated in Europe. And I worry that it will create a situation where most of these products get launched first, and we get our experience with these products in the United States, and they don't end up in Europe for years or at all in some cases, and I think that would be bad for patients in Europe. And, and so remains to be seen what will happen, but hopefully we can shape or reshape some of those regulations in Europe to not be quite as burdensome as they appear they are going to be today. Still doesn't happen until 2020, but our planning activities for those new regulations in Europe are already underway.
0: That's great. Thank you so much for sharing that. Having been in the industry for the last decade, I certainly understand that regulation is something that is very challenging, but it's indeed promising to see FDA and other authorities taking a significant amount of action, albeit slow, in uh, creating regulations that would ultimately benefit the patients quite greatly would love to now talk about what are some of the therapeutic areas where you're seeing activity from a digital standpoint. You've hinted at diabetes and a couple others in our conversation early on, but would love for you to elaborate overall which therapeutic areas are seeing most activity in digital. And then from a Genentech Roche standpoint, what are you focused on?
1: I would say... Diabetes continues to be sort of the most interesting area with the most experimentation and lots of interesting startups, but also really interesting digital health activities going on in some of the leading diabetes device companies and pharma companies. Asthma is probably second to that, where because of connected inhalers and a lot of the Technology that's being developed there, seeing a lot of activity. And then it's pretty heterogeneous after that. And at Roche and Genentech, we're focused on some interesting areas that maybe are uh, rare disease focused, and it's because we've uncovered some unmet needs associated with some of these rare diseases where uh, we think digital tools might be able to help solve some very specific challenges that are seen in uh, some of these rare disease populations. Idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis is one of them, where the the therapies are life-extending, but the side effects from the therapies make it a major challenge for patients to stay on therapy. And so we think we have a great opportunity to introduce some interesting tools to help support patients there. And other than that, it's, it's uh, in many other areas. We're seeing really interesting opportunity for healthcare professional tools in ophthalmology, for example, and doing some interesting work on artificial intelligence of retinal photography and seeing how that might be a way to predict, better than a human being can, potential onset of new eye diseases. So super interesting areas like that.
0: Yeah, indeed. As we wrap up our conversation, a couple of final questions. We started with you making an impact in your organization using behavioral science. Would love to hear from you. How do you see behavioral neuroscience making an impact on patients and physicians?
1: I think this is really one of the most exciting areas because we have a lot we can learn from the consumer technology world. As I mentioned, there's been this explosion in understanding of how the brain works and what drives behaviors and what behavioral determinants are um, for all sorts of behaviors. And the consumer tech world has adopted a lot of this type of thinking in the design of their user experiences, whether it's Google or YouTube or Instagram or Facebook. Part of the reason we're addicted to those solutions is because they've thought very carefully using behavioral scientists about how to get us addicted. For better or worse. I won't judge whether that's a good or a bad thing. But I think those principles and the science behind how that achieves increased engagement, how it achieves sustained use, those are powerful tools that we have an opportunity to bring into pharma. Frankly, because we have a history in pharma of 20 years of creating mobile apps, for example, uh, that nobody uses. Nor should they. but They're often terrible. Um, and so we don't have a great track record. And I think if we really want to create engaging solutions, we ought to copy the best practices from the consumer technology world and start to leverage behavioral sciences in the design of our solutions.
0: Indeed. I am certainly addicted to my phone. Uh, <laughs> sorry to admit that, but that's yeah. just the reality. Join the club. <laughs> One final question for you, Paul. would love to know, what's Paul outside of work? Ah. What excites you outside of work?
1: You know, it's funny. When I was studying cognitive science in college, but for the first two years, I was a double major because I was a piano performance major and I had to make a choice about which way to go, and I realized I'd probably live like a rat in a hole if I Tough choice. continued being a <laughs> pianist. So I love classical music. I go to concerts regularly with my husband. Uh, we're both big film fanatics, so if we're not in the concert hall, we're in the movie theater. And then I'm fortunate that with my job, I have many opportunities to travel, so we usually try and transform those business trips into many vacations around the world wherever possible. So I feel really fortunate and lucky to be able to do all of the above quite regularly.
0: That sounds fascinating and indeed a very rich life in terms of you, know, you sh- giving back to the community at large. I know that you speak at a lot of conferences now, and thank you so much for sharing your insights and knowledge and perspective with us here on the Slalom Daily Dose podcast. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Slalom Daily Dose. We hope you enjoyed it. Stay tuned for more healthcare and life sciences episodes coming your way soon.